When a band turns the beat around, it means they take the groove they'd established and flip it on its head. Up is down, left is right, two and four, or one and three. Turning the beat around is not to be confused with a turnaround, which is the chord progression at the end of a song's form that leads back to the beginning. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about turntables turning Tina and Bachman Turner turnarounds as they turn, 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 turn the beat around. Strong Songs is an independent, listener-supported show. It's supported by wonderful patrons over on Patreon, but also supported by all of you who spread the word about the show and help me find new listeners. I really appreciate everyone who supports the show, however they do it. So if you're out there, thanks so much. On this episode, we're going to be drilling into the new wave sound of one of the best bands of the late 70s and the 1980s, a band whose music is so familiar to so many of you that I'd guess it leads some people to underrate them a bit. I'm excited to get into it, so let's fire the ignition, pop the clutch, and hit the road. personnel for a rock band, you tend to think of a kind of set group of musicians. There's usually at least one guitarist, at least one vocalist, somebody playing bass, and somebody playing drums. But I would argue that there is a specific lineup for a rock band that is maybe the most effective, most versatile arrangement for a rock band, and it involves five musicians. So first, you have your lead singer, who also plays rhythm guitar. So that's one guitar part and lead singing handled by a single person. Your second musician is your lead guitar player, who maybe sings backup, but is primarily concerned with playing lead guitar parts and guitar solos. Then you've got your bass player and your drummer, the rhythm section, driving the bus, holding the thing down. That's four. And then you have that crucial fifth musician, and this is usually somebody who plays keyboard, who adds synthesizer sounds, who's able to sort of tie the whole thing together with nice extra harmonic information, maybe some ear candy up in the left and the right channel, someone who can also sing back up and just is there to flesh out the sound of the band. So five musicians, I really think five is the magic number when it comes to rock band personnel. And the band that we're going to be talking about on this episode is just such a five-piece band. And they're a band with a really distinct sound that I think we can kind of drill down on and that I can hopefully give you a new appreciation for by the time we've reached the end of the episode. So let me demonstrate what I'm talking about with how that five-piece personnel works. Let's just start with a little guitar. All right, nice. Let's get the bass, drums, and the lead guitar in there. Maybe they can play a hit together. It's a solid hit. I like it. How about two hits? All right, so now can we get a backbeat and maybe some lyrics? I don't mind you coming here Wasting all my time Cause when you're standing all so near I kind of lose my mind It's not the perfume that you wear All right, nice. This is a pretty standard four-person rock band. Two guitars, bass and drums with a lead vocalist. Good, it sounds good, but you know what it needs? It needs that fifth band member. Here 
There's that sound, that classic sound of the fabulous five-piece out of Boston, one of my favorite bands of all time, The Cars, playing their 1978 hit single, Just What I Needed. Cars are a band that has long been near and dear to my heart. Back when I lived in San Francisco in the 2000s, I had a rock band. We were called Square Tape. We were originally called Tape, but then there were so many bands called Tape that we changed our name to Square Tape, which isn't as good of a name as Tape, but I guess that's why it wasn't taken. Anyways, I had a band called Square Tape. We were a really fun band. We were pretty good. It was when I was first learning how to write music, how to sing, how to be, you know, a front man and a songwriter instead of just a saxophone player. It was a very educational experience, and I was lucky to have a really good band. I was not a very experienced frontman or singer, but I did manage to uh, somehow coax some very good musicians into playing with me. So anyways, I didn't realize it at the time, but I really kind of fashioned a very similar band to the Cars. We were a five-piece. We had two guitars and a keyboard player who also sang and also played guitar. And the music that we played was also a sort of very arranged, very controlled, kind of synth rock, new wave kind of influenced thing. That was a sound that was very popular in the, in the mid-2000s. And uh, we kind of saw like the cars even though at the time I wasn't listening to that much of that band I should have been listening to more of the cars. It's funny listening to something from, God, now 15 years ago. I've learned a lot about making music since then, but those songs still kind of hold up, you know? Anyways, we actually kind of learned just what I needed to cover. Our guitarist, Dan Nerva, was like, you know, we actually kind of sound like the cars. We should do a cars cover. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, I know that song, Just What I Needed. That's a cool song. Let's do it. We learned it. We never actually performed it, but it's always been a song that I've thought really fondly of. So, of course, I knew I was going to do an episode on the cars eventually. And I always kind of assumed that that episode was going to be about just what I needed. And this episode is going to be about just what I needed. But here's the thing. See, there's this other Cars song that I've really come to love a lot as well, and it actually has a lot in common with just what I needed, to the point that I couldn't stop thinking about it when I thought about making this episode. So in the end, I decided to do something a little bit different. This episode is going to focus on just what I needed by the cars, but every so often, I'm going to do a little fast forward into the future, six years to 1984, to talk about their hit single, You Might Think. I'm going to structure this episode a little bit differently than your average Strong Songs episode, but I think it'll be fun. Rather than just go note for note through just what I needed, I'm going to try to focus on three things that I think are essential to the car's sound. I want you to walk away from this episode with a better sense of them as a band and what it is that makes them special, that contributes to their unique sound. I think each of those three things is really present in just what I needed, but I also really like, you might think, and I really like their more 80s 
80s synth-heavy sound. So I'm going to be periodically fast-forwarding six years to 1984 to talk about the same musical elements and how they manifest in You Might Think. So the three things that I'm going to focus on are first, the way that this band layers their arrangements, which I think is very clever and very specific. They do a very specific thing with how they arrange their songs. Second, and kind of related, I'm going to talk about Elliot Easton, the lead guitar player for the Cars, and specifically how he writes his guitar parts and how he plays his guitar solos in this really nice, really tight way that sort of elaborates on all the ideas that are already going on in the song. And third, I'm going to talk about Greg Hawks, who I already alluded to, the keyboard player for the Cars, whose synth parts are such a big part of why these songs sound so distinct and why this kind of new wave synth rock sounds different from traditional rock and roll. And I think that these two songs, 1978's Just What I Needed and 1984's You Might Think, between them, they really offer a lot of great examples of each of those three things. And also between them, they give a pretty comprehensive sense of that distinctive car's sound. So in this analysis of Just What I Needed, you can think of You Might Think as a sort of a spice that we're going to periodically use to further bring out the musical flavors of the cars. So as I've said, the Cars consisted of five members. Rick Ocasek was usually the lead singer and also the lead songwriter of the band. He also played rhythm guitar. Ben Orr, Benjamin Orr, was also a vocalist and he actually sang lead on Just What I Needed. He also sang the lead on Drive, so he sang on two of the Cars' biggest radio hits. Who's gonna tell you when it's too And in addition to providing some iconic vocal performances, Benoit, of course, played bass, David Robinson played drums, and then, as I mentioned, Elliot Easton was the lead guitar player. We'll definitely talk about him more a little later. And then last, there's that fifth member that I've alluded to. Greg Hawks was the keyboard player in the cars. It's really nice having that fifth voice, that fifth part. And I think that Okasik was really good at taking advantage of Hawks' abilities and the different sounds that he could get on various synthesizers to really just give each song something special or each section of each song something special. So let's get into that first thing of the three things that we're going to be focusing on this episode, and that is the way that the cars arranged their sound and arranged their instruments on these songs to really get the most out of each of the five members of the band. So we're going to start with Just What I Needed, because this song actually does something really cool. It layers the introductions of each band member, basically, so that in different sections of the song through the first verse, there's kind of a new sound or a new voice introduced all the way up until Hawks enters for this sort of instrumental interlude after the first verse on that synthesizer. Now, Just What I Needed was written by Rick Ocasek. Like I said, Rick Ocasek was one of the greatest pop rock songwriters of all time, also actually a great producer. He produced some 
some early stuff for Weezer. He produced the Blue Album, kind of produced a bunch of great records. So just an incredibly strong sensibility for this certain type of pop rock music. It's off of the Cars' 1978 debut, which is a self-titled record. It was produced by Roy Thomas Baker, a legendary producer who produced, among other things, Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, he, he did a lot of producing for Queen, but also The Who, The Rolling Stones. I mean, David Bowie, the list goes on and on and on. He's a legend, but just to name a, a previous strong song that was also produced by Roy Thomas Baker. So I'm going to assume that Roy Thomas Baker and Rick Ocasek worked together on this arrangement. I think the arrangement of this song is so good. And like I said, the way that it layers gives us a kind of introduction to each of the elements that both of these songs work with so well. So it starts pretty simple. It's just electric guitar and electric bass, the rhythm guitar, so just Ocasek's electric guitar, and just a snare drum in the drums. very easy one to recreate. I'm just playing electric guitar here. I'm sort of palm muting the guitar, just playing the bass notes through this chord progression. It goes E, then B, then C sharp minor, and then G sharp major. I don't mind you coming here, wasting all my time, cause when you're standing oh so near, I kind of lose my mind. So it doesn't really get simpler than that in terms of the fundamental groove. I mean, the guitar is just playing the same thing as the bass. They're moving through a pretty simple chord progression. The one thing that I really like about this chord progression is that G-sharp major chord. If it weren't for that chord, it would almost be the four chords, you know, that very classic pop chord progression that I've talked about a bunch on the show. That would go E major to B major to C-sharp minor to A major, but instead they go from C-sharp minor to G-sharp major, which is just this kind of weird chord. It's a little bit more angular, a little bit more outside of the key center, and uh, as a result, it, it gives it just a little bit more of an edge. That being said, pretty standard chord progression here, one to five to six minor to three major. It's really all in the details, the details that they add on top of that muted electric guitar, electric bass, and very simple drum groove. That's kind of what makes this whole section of the song work. And it's also in how they layer those extra parts to kind of give this sense of build and build and build and build into the full groove and the entrance of the keyboard. So let's actually reverse engineer this thing. Once everybody's in, it sounds like this. So that's where they end up. It's pretty rocking and it's pretty big. But at the start, there's really just that palm muted electric guitar and the electric bass playing roots and just a snare drum. There isn't even a kick or a hi-hat or any other part of the drums. I don't mind you coming here. Wasting all my time. So there's a lot of space here at the beginning. So the first thing that they do is they add a little more to the drums and add a second guitar. So the drums are the most obvious thing that changes there, right? We go into a really standard rock beat there. David Robinson adds the hi-hat, he adds the kick drum. The kick has a kind of a specific pattern for this song. It's not a complicated one, but this like boom, cha, boom, boom, cha. 
boom, boom, cha, boom, 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 cha. That's kind of the groove for this song. And it does give it this a little bit kind of robotic, um, very clean kind of a groove. There's not a lot of swing in David Robinson's drum part. So that automatically just gives things more of a sense of opening up. But of course, also, Elliot Easton joins on the electric guitar. He plays something sort of similar to what Ocasek is playing, but he, he adds some more notes and he begins playing kind of a guitar figure. So this is a great way to use a lead guitar player. He's not like playing a solo exactly, he's just playing a more elaborate part and that adds this nice sense of development when he comes in. He's basically playing a power chord through the chords, but then he's adding a sort of a sixth on top. So a power chord is just a root and a fifth. Sometimes you put a second root up top, but it's really just one and five. Doesn't have a ton of harmonic information, so it's pretty open. And if you were just gonna play power chords through this chord progression, it would sound fine. It would be a little bit more than what Ocasek is playing in the rhythm part. He's just playing the roots, but Easton is actually playing something a little bit more specific. So he's kind of fingering it like one and five, and then he's sliding up to the sixth on that second note. It just makes he's playing a little bit more exciting and adds a little bit more information and coupled with the fact that the drums are playing a more fleshed out groove it really helps just this one little moment in the song feel like a new chapter in this little mini narrative so we've gone from this to this before they open it up even more So that's the rhythm section. That's what the instruments in the band are doing. There's also some cool layering going on vocally. So Ben Orr sounds great on this song. He's a really, really good singer, and he's pretty much commanding the lead vocal part here, but there is this pretty cool harmony part that comes in when he sings, it's not the ribbons in your hair. Listen for it. So I've mentioned before that that G-sharp major chord is kind of the odd one. It's kind of the angular, funky chord. I think it makes sense that they add the backup vocals just on the melodic line over that chord. The melody goes from a G-sharp to a C, and the harmony part is just up a third from a C to a D-sharp. And that just really brings out that sound of a G-sharp major triad. The cars are very judicious with their backup vocals, but they also get a lot out of them when they do use them. This is a great example of that, and just one more element that they introduce, along with all this other stuff that's happening in the rhythm section. It's not the ribbons in your in some ways it's kind of basic, right? And it's pretty subtle. I mean, you introduce new instruments one at a time, you have it feel like a little narrative, but it's so well done here. It's so perfectly paced out. It moves pretty fast. I mean, they're changing sort of modes every few bars. And as a result, it just feels like this nice steady build into the first synthesizer entrance. So that's my little recreation. Listen to the main recording and just pay attention for that. Listen to how it starts with that super simple rhythm guitar part along with the electric bass with just snare drum Hits. Catch how halfway through the verse, Elliot Easton enters with his lead guitar part over on the right, playing a slightly more complicated part, adding that sixth in the power chord, while David Robinson's drum groove also becomes more fleshed out with the hi-hat and the kick drum coming in. Listen for those backup vocals that come in on that G-sharp major chord when he sings It's Not the Ribbons in Your Hair, and just catch the feeling of build as this whole arrangement carries us forward into the synthesizer entrance. All right, ears on, here we go. I don't mind you coming here. Wasting all my time 
talk a little bit more about Elliot Easton's guitar playing for the second thing in this episode, and then we'll get into Greg Hawks and all the great work that he did on Synthesizer, but uh, there's definitely some of that going on once the whole band is in and this song really gets cooking. But I want to stay on the way that the cars arrange their songs for a little while longer, and I hope you've gotten a sense of how meticulous they are, how careful they are, and how they place each instrument, and that means that it's time for our first fast forward. We're going to fast forward six years to 1984 and listen a little bit to You Might Think, with all of that in mind. So you can probably already hear some similarities. Now you can probably hear some differences as well. For starters, Rick Ocasek is singing lead on this one, but also it's just a very different approach to the song at the beginning. A whole lot more of the elements are in right from the downbeat. It isn't anything like the really dramatic layering that Just What I Needed does. It starts with a lot more of its pieces in place. So You Might Think was produced by Mutt Lange, another legendary record producer. This is his first time working with the Cars, and it was their first record not working with Roy Thomas Baker. I do think you can hear a very different sound. He was definitely getting a different sound out of the band. There's a lot more synth. There's a little bit less guitar. It's a little less rocking, a little poppier, and it really worked for them. Heartbeat City, the album that this is on from 1984, was a huge hit. This was kind of the album that took the Cars to that next level that made them really big stars, because there were a couple of big top 10 hits. You've actually heard both of them, you might think, and also Drive were both top 10 hits off of this album. So it's been six years. The band sound has matured, but you can still hear the those basic elements in place, and certainly that's true when it comes to the arrangement. It's got a lot of those same pieces. It's got the guitar kind of chugging away, playing root notes. It's got the same kind of a groove in the drums and the bass and the rhythm guitar kind of echoing one another as they move through. It even introduces a lead guitar part using a kind of modified power chord partway in. So I hope you're starting to get a sense of the car's sound as I kind of hear it. This is pretty similar to just what I needed, you know? Of course, there are differences in the sound, there are differences in the grooves. These are very different records in some ways, but that fundamental Carsy sound is really right there in both of these songs, and it's really in those meticulous arrangements, the careful ways that the guitars and the rhythm section and the synthesizers are kind of laid out. So let's talk about those guitars and those synthesizers. Elliot Easton and Greg Hawks, those two musicians, they kind of take turns being that extra fifth 
vital voice that sort of adds a little bit of spice to each section of the song. Obviously, Greg Hawks has a lot to work with, especially on Heartbeat City. There's a ton of really cool synthesizers on that record. But Elliot Easton, when I've gone back and listened to the cars and when I was kind of preparing for this episode, I was so consistently impressed with what Elliot Easton is doing on both of these recordings. So on both of these tunes, Easton plays a guitar solo. They're really good solos. They're just like super melodic and well put together. I think that his solo on Just What I Needed is one of the tidiest guitar solos I've heard. And uh, we'll get into that in a minute. But first, I just want to talk a little bit more about all the extra parts, the overdubs, the little curly cues and bits and bobs that Easton adds on the guitar in the studio. You can think of them as Eastonisms. Like, this is one of my favorites on Just What I Needed. Listen for the third guitar part, the overdubbed guitar part that comes in in the middle channel. Right here. <laughs> now listen for it again. So in reality, Elliot Easton is kind of playing two different guitar parts on this recording. There's his lead part, which is great. I mean, you're hearing it over in the right channel. He's actually playing so much. The next time you listen to this song, pay attention to that right channel guitar. I mean, he's just like adding a ton of ideas, a ton of little riffs, all this little complexity that he's adding throughout. That's kind of his guitar part. That's probably what he plays when they do this song live. But there's a second Easton, and he's in there doing those Eastonisms, playing these little riffs, usually in the center channel, to just sort of elaborate on what's going on. What he's doing here is a classic guitar trick between the first and the third strings where you play those two strings and you kind of mute the second string in between them. So this is the highest and the third highest string. And when you play those strings together in standard tuning, you get a G on the third string and an E on the first string. So there's a sixth in between them. And that sixth is actually a really flexible interval. It lets you get down to a fifth if you want. It lets you get up to a flat seventh or even to an octave if you want, if you want to move that first string around. And that sound, really just moving that sixth through a kind of scale, it's a really common sound in blues and in country music. You've heard it a million times, I'm sure. You've definitely heard it if you've listened to this song because Elliot Easton really likes to use it. I mean, we'll get to it at the end of his guitar solo on Just What I Needed. But it's a classic sound, a classic country and blues sound, and he's using it really well here. He's playing those little riffs at the ends of each phrase, and he's using the riffs to emphasize the two different chords that the two phrases end on. So the first time through the phrase, it ends on G sharp. It goes E major, B major, C sharp minor, and then G sharp. And when the G sharp hits, Easton plays this riff. Then the second time through the phrase, it actually ends on an A. It ends on the four chord. It does the standard four chords. It goes E major, B major, C sharp minor, a major, and that time he plays this. It's a clever little thing because it emphasizes the difference between the two chords. He's playing the same shape on the same two strings. He's just moved it up a half step, played a little bit more inside, and he really emphasizes that this time they're ending the phrase on a different chord. Listen back to that and keep an ear out for that center third part, playing those little Eastonisms on the first and the third string. Here's the first one. Here's the second one. I don't mind you hanging out. 
That second center channel Elliott Easton comes in again at the chorus. There's actually a subtle little extra guitar part going on on the choruses to Just What I Needed that I think is is really cool. It's a, the kind of subtle thing that just adds a little bit of body to the recording, sort of fleshes out the mix a little bit. Listen to the first time through the chorus and see if you can hear it. It's subtle, but do you hear it? It's back in the mix in the center. It's kind of a counter melody that runs underneath everything. I would guess that it was a synthesizer, except there are these moments of space where you can hear a sustained note, and it sounds like an electric guitar to me. And then brought way down in the mix. It's a very subtle thing, but it actually really does flesh out this chorus. Listen again, and I'll play along on piano with my kind of approximation of what's going on, just to help you kind of hear it. We're gonna get into that guitar solo next, but I do just wanna say that the lyrics to Just What I Needed are so cool. They're so coy. It's so perfectly cars. I think Rico Kasich has a very coy style of, of writing lyrics. I love the fact that this song is just a guy listing all of the things that it isn't. I like that kind of song in general. He's saying it's not the ribbons in your hair, it's not the perfume that you wear. And he's kind of says, like, I guess you're just what I needed. It has this sort of, well, I guess this is what it is. There's a kind of an ambiguity to this song that I really enjoy. I just wanted to mention that because I do think the lyrics of this song are super cool. I mean, it's called Just What I Needed, and the big reveal of what he needed, he needed someone to bleed and he needed someone to feed. So he needed someone to kind of take their blood from them, and he needed someone to take from him, you know, to feed, which is just a little bit twisted. It's a little bit weird, and I really like that about this song. Okay, so let's talk about one of the best 8-bar rock guitar solos ever recorded. Just a soloist after my own heart. It's such a tidy, carefully composed solo. It's phrased so well. It outlines the chords so well. It's also so playful and kind of funky sounding. I love this guitar solo. So you can think of it kind of like four acts. There are four phrases in this solo. The first phrase goes down. The second phrase goes up. The third phrase goes back down. And the fourth phrase goes all the way up. So we're on the verse chord progression E to B major to C sharp minor to G sharp major. The first phrase traces straight through that chord progression and really makes a meal out of the G sharp major chord yet again, emphasizing that unusual chord in the four chord chord progression. Played on piano, it just moves perfectly through that chord progression. It starts on the third of E major, it starts on a G sharp, then it kind of walks down and voice leads to the D sharp, the third on the B major, then it goes up, then they go to C sharp minor, and it ends on this nice little bend from C to C sharp, which is the third of that G sharp major. Played on piano, it sounds positively pert.
Of course, when you play it on guitar with a kind of chorusy effect and some bends, it can get a lot nastier sounding, despite being so pleasantly inside of the chord progression. Now you may have noticed that sometimes instead of ending on that G sharp major, they like to end on an A major. They do that on the guitar solo, and they actually cycle back and forth between ending a phrase on a G sharp and ending a phrase up a half step on an A major. So the first time through, it goes E B C sharp minor G sharp major. Second time through, it goes E B C sharp minor A major. The second phrase of the guitar solo follows that chord progression just as meticulously as it followed the first four chords, but it's moving up instead of moving down, so it takes us back up to kind of around where we began. You can really kind of feel the melodic logic of how this works, how that first phrase leads into that second phrase, how they kind of go down and back up. It feels like a sentence. Listen to those first two phrases of the guitar solo together, and just pay attention to how perfectly that first phrase leads into the second phrase. So it's very much this kind of opening phrase and then a follow-up phrase that develops the initial idea, takes us back up to where we began while raising the intensity some. The third phrase does kind of the same thing as the first phrase. It heads back down again, but it's a little busier, a little bit more intense. Now, Elliot Easton is doing something really cool here that I kind of want to highlight because it's a principle of phrasing and improvised guitar solos that I actually don't think I've talked about on the show before, and that is he's beginning each new phrase in the same place that he ended the phrase before it, which gives his line a nice feeling of continuity even as he's shifting from phrase to phrase. So let's think of these phrases in terms of the first note and the last note. So the first phrase begins on a G sharp. That's the G sharp. Then it kind of walks down, does some stuff, and then it ends on a C natural. The next phrase begins on a B, which is just a half step away from that C natural. It's a B, which C natural isn't in the key of E, so he's got to start on a B. And then it walks up, walks up, and it ends on a C sharp. Remember, that's when the song goes to an A major chord. So that's the third in the key of A major. Ends on a C sharp. Where does the third phrase begin? It begins on a C sharp. It begins on that same note. He's following this really important rule of phrasing, which is, generally speaking, when you're soloing and you end a phrase, it's a good idea to start your next phrase in the same kind of place. You can jump all around. You know, he could play down through that first phrase, down he ends on that C natural, and then he starts the next phrase way up high on the neck. He could do that, but it won't feel quite as cohesive for a listener, it won't feel quite as coherent as a line, and this is a very coherent solo. One of the reasons for that is because he's following that rule and starting each new phrase right around where he ended the phrase before it. And I want to stress, this isn't a rule in like you have to follow this or anything, there are no rules to improvisation, but it is a good way to add structure to a solo and make each of your phrases feel like it connects to the one that came before it. And then the final phrase is really the thing that ties this all together. It's a little exclamation point at the end of things, a much more guitar-y kind of a riff, a little bit of a blues thing, a little bit of a country thing, and he slides back up that first and third string all the way back up to this perfectly placed ending. 
It's just mwah, chef's kiss. What a well put together guitar solo. Let's listen to the whole thing all the way through and just pay attention to everything I just talked about. Those four phrases, how the first one goes down ending on G sharp, how the second one goes up and ends on A major. The third one goes back down, back to the G sharp, but a little bit more intense about it. And that fourth and final phrase is just an exclamation point at the end of the sentence. And as you pay attention to all of that, also try to hear how each phrase begins right around where the phrase before it ended, giving a nice sense of continuity to the whole thing. What a solo. Now that wasn't the last time that Elliot Easton would play a really carefully put together, perfectly placed guitar solo, which means it's time to fast forward for the second time. Let's fast forward six years to 1984 and look at how he was featured on You Might Think. great solo, but it's a really different kind of solo. You probably noticed listening to it, it's a little bit less melodic. It's got less going on. It's a little more textural or kind of riffy. He just plays these really simple kind of chordal riffs for the whole first part of it, and then finally comes out of it, tying it all together with a riff at the end. It's still really well produced, though, and it fits the song perfectly. You might think has a lot more going on. It's a much busier recording. There's way more synth parts, and that means that Elliot Easton backs off. He plays a little bit less for his solo and leaves more space for it to feel like a conversation with Greg Hawks's keyboard playing. You can hear in those phrases he's treating it kind of like a call and response between that keyboard riff, you know, the iconic keyboard riff of this song, that leaves a little bit of space and in between each one of those he plays a little riff. So it goes keyboard part, guitar riff, keyboard part, guitar riff, like a little conversation. Listen again and pay attention for that. It's cool, right? I mean, that final line that he plays just kills me. He finally goes into his melodic mode and even adds a harmonized guitarmony up above himself for that final line. So it's this effect of sort of, finally he plays this melodic line and then two guitars harmonize together for the very last line. It rules. Now I mentioned Elliot Easton being sort of in conversation with Greg Hawks' synthesizers. I do think that happens a lot on this recording. It's kind of a cool evolution of the band because they use Hawks really well on Just What I Needed, but his role has obviously grown quite a bit. There's a lot more synthesizer action going on on You Might Think, which gives both Hawks and Easton more room to play with one another. One thing that I really like, there's a little Eastonism during this sort of B minor descending section during the pre-chorus of You Might Think. Smile. You might think it's foolish. 
When OK6 sings, but I think that you're wild when you flash that fragile smile. More great lyrics, by the way. There's this really nice thing that happens. They're in D major, the song is in D major, but they go to B minor here, the relative minor. It walks down, a B minor walks down to an A major, and then that walks down to a G, to the four chord. Really common chord progression, but I love what they do with it. Over on the left, you can hear Easton, he switches over to a kind of chorusy guitar. I think he's playing a strat, it sounds like a chorusy strat to me, and he kind of outlines the chords on the way down. As he does that, over on the right, Hawks is playing electric piano, and you can hear him kind of echo the chords. So first you'll hear the guitar on the left, and then you'll hear the electric piano on the right. Then you'll hear the guitar down on the A on the left, and you'll hear the electric piano playing an A chord over on the right. It's this nice little ping pong back and forth between the two different parts. Listen back to the recording and pay attention for that. Hear how the guitar first plays on the left, and then it's echoed by a chord in the electric piano over on the right. And that's a perfect opportunity to go back to 1978 for the third thing that I want to talk about in this episode, and that is Greg Hawks' synthesizer playing. Now, as you can tell, on you might think, there's a whole lot of synth going on. There's a big synthesizer song, bunch of different tones, all overdubbed, overlapping with one another. He's got a ton to do on that song. What I like about Just What I Needed is that the synthesizer part is super focused. It almost sounds live. It's just this one part, but man, it's the thing that elevates the entire song. That synth interlude in between the first and second verses has got to be up there with the most iconic synth parts of all time. It's really simple, but it works perfectly in the song. It's the right tone and the right notes for the right moment, and it just causes this thing to happen with the song. It's hard to even put it into words, but it's just perfect. It comes in and it's like, yep, that's exactly what I wanted to hear there. that little guitar riff, you're starting to get it, right? The whole thing, that whole Cars thing. You know, a lot of bands have five members. A lot of bands have similar instrumentation, but there's something specific. There's something special about the Cars. So Greg Hawks and this synthesizer, I believe that what he's playing is a Korg Mini Korg 700. I'm no synthesizer expert. I found that online. It does kind of sound right. The demonstrations of the Mini Korg 700 sound similar to this, but it's, it's a pretty simple synthesizer sound, really. You can make it with almost any synth. It's like a saw wave with a nice portamento that connects all of the notes. Now, portamento is a really important concept when talking about synthesizers. I've talked about it before, I believe on a Q&A episode from year three, but to explain it again, portamento is also known as glide, and it's the setting on a synthesizer that allows you to slide from one note to another, rather than abruptly jumping from one note to another, like you would if you were, say, playing a regular acoustic piano. It adds a whole different energy to a synthesizer part to add some glide or some portamento to the performance. Let me show you what I'm talking about. So, I'm recreating this synth using my Korg Minilog, which is actually the only analog synth that I own. It's the only synthesizer that I own, but it happens to be made by the same company that made the synth on this recording. So it's probably pretty close, even though I'm no synth master and I probably haven't got it totally as dialed in, you know, to get that sound. But anyways, here's what that sounds like when I play it on my Minilog XD. 
All right, not bad, that's pretty close. Now let me take the portamento knob, which is one of the knobs on the synthesizer, and turn it all the way to the left, turn it all the way off. This is what it would sound like without any glide, without any portamento. It's just different, right? It's a little more upright and proper. It doesn't have that same sense of sort of slidiness to it that it does when you turn up the portamento. key part of the sound, right? You can really hear it in that big jump that happens right here. Now here's the thing that's remarkable about this song. I've always thought of Just What I Needed as a very synth-heavy song, but that synth part that we just heard, that's kind of the entirety of the synth parts until the very end where there's another very important part. But really, for most of the song, it's just that one part. It plays during this section between the first and the second verse, and then it repeats itself during the pre-chorus on the second verse. It's a way that the second pre-chorus kind of differentiates itself from the first one. Now, Greg Hawks' synth part on Just What I Needed back in 1978 is a pretty simple part, and that's because the Cars were still largely a guitar-driven band. Go listen to their self-titled record after you've listened to this episode. It's really, really good. I've been listening to it just obsessively over the last few weeks. And the thing that I've noticed is that Greg Hawks' keyboard playing, it's almost always in that same mode. Like, his synth parts on Good Times Roll, the opener, totally killer tune, really similar to what he's doing on Just What I Needed. Basically, the lone synth that has come in to add a little bit of flavor to an otherwise very guitar-driven sound. Also, Elliot Easton plays so much cool stuff on this self-titled record because it's so guitar-heavy, they're really using a lot of his skills. Like, his guitar solo on My Best Friend's Girl is wild. It's like really paying tribute to a different type of guitar solo. It's this kind of slap-delay, chicken-picking, kind of like bluegrass, almost rockabilly thing. It's a really cool solo, it's just very different, and he's able to do that because it fits with this style of rock and roll. So what I think is so fascinating about the Cars is you can compare that sound, which I love, I love the way that 1978 record sounds, to the more synth-heavy sound that they had in 1984. Now, I know this is a very me thing to say, but I really like both sounds, and the reason for that is kind of that it's the same band. I think that's really interesting, and while, yeah, every band changes, I think you really can hear all of these ways that the sensibilities that were in place in 1978 were still in place in 1984. And regarding that kind of stylistic shift they underwent, it's sort of emblematic of the way that popular music shifted from the late 1970s through the mid-1980s, where synthesizers took on a stronger role and a band could be more defined by a synth sound without necessarily being like a full-on synthesizer band. You could still be an electric guitar rock band and have a lot more synthesizer going on as the cars themselves would demonstrate six years later, which means it's time to fast forward one more time from that simple but essential Greg Hawks keyboard part to the maximalist, complicated, layered performance that he gave in 1984 on You Might Think. You might think it's hysterical, but I know when 
what a difference six years makes. In 1984, the synthesizer was a crucial part of almost every single part of this song, but different kinds of synthesizers and different kinds of electric pianos. There are so many different sounds going on here. God, I could just like go through and list some of my favorites, I guess. I love those little arpeggios that he plays during that second verse. He's just sort of like dancing around this D and the C sharp. Lovely stuff. Hear it over there on the right. That's so good. Then Easton and Hawks are doing that back and forth. Man. This is just how you write a pop rock song. This is how you use the synthesizer, how you use the guitar, and how you arrange the band. In six years, they've evolved to the point where the bridge can have no guitar and be completely dominated by synth. But you kept it going till the sun fell down. Before transitioning, of course, to a guitar solo. so well balanced, it's so confident, it's so immaculately put together. That approach to arranging and songwriting didn't come out of nowhere, and you can hear all the pieces of that in 1978 on Just What I Needed, just in a slightly rawer form. And for my money, it actually doesn't get any better than the end of Just What I Needed. I think all the pieces are there, the synthesizer, the groove, the approach to melody, the mixing of synth and guitar, it's all there, and it's the reason that the end of that song is so strong. After a little breakdown, they start with the synth. You can hear that portamento sliding around as Greg Hawks' new melody is joined by two of his bandmates. First, Elliot Easton joins on guitar over on the left. Then Ben Orr joins on vocals. And with each of those five crucial elements sounding together, it's time to end the song. And that'll do it for my analysis of the cars, just what I needed, with a little bonus analysis of their 1984 hit, You Might Think. This was a fun one to put together, and I hope that I gave you a sense of the cars' sound by going a little bit farther outside of just one song, because I think that this band really did change in interesting ways through the 1980s. And probably unsurprisingly, I love the way they sounded in 1978 and how they sounded in 1984. Thank you all so much, as always, for supporting this show. Thanks for telling your friends about it. I still hear from people all the time who will tell their friends, their musically inclined friends, or maybe their friends who they wish were a little more musically inclined. They'll tell them about the show, they'll spread the word, and that's really how people find out about Strong Songs. Big thanks as well to everybody who supports Strong Songs on Patreon. I know I mention it every episode. I hope you're not sick of hearing about it, but it really is super important that this show provides some income for me because I put a lot of work into it. It's one of my main gigs at this point. Point, and I'm really happy that that's the case. So thank you all so much for signing up over there. Half and Whole Note patrons are down in the show notes. And if you'd like to become a patron of Strong Songs, go to patreon.com slash strong songs and you can sign up. 
This episode's outro soloist is the one and only BJ Cord on trumpet. BJ was the very first outro soloist that I ever recorded. He works at Monet Trumpets here in Portland, Oregon, and actually, we recently went with the Monet folks to see noted Monet player Wynton Marcellus with his big band, and man, it was cool. They're a really good band. I guess it's not surprising that one of the greatest living jazz musicians has a good big band, but wow, jazz at Lincoln Center is good. Um, live music, live jazz music. Turns out it's pretty good. Anyways, stick around for BJ, and I'll be back in two weeks with more strong songs. <laughs>